0: Church, how are we, man? I was gonna say it's good to see y'all, um, but the we are having some technical difficulties this morning. But um, that's because I believe that I believe that the devil gets in our technology. Amen. When 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 good stuff's getting ready to happen, stuff usually goes wrong with technology. I think he hits there first, which means we're getting ready to have an awesome day. So I hope that you're as excited about it as I am. Uh, my name is Brian. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here also. It's an opportunity uh, of mine most weeks to be able to get up here and to, uh, and to open God's Word, to look at it, to teach, and, and we can try and learn some stuff together. And the stuff that we've been trying to learn together for the last several weeks is how we can close the gap between the ideal family and some of the stuff that, that Jesus said about the way that families are supposed to work and, and then some of the things that, that the rest of the Bible has to say about the way that families are supposed to work, that there are these ideals that all of us would love to achieve, but they're, they're so far above normal that it makes even trying to achieve the ideal very frustrating and difficult because the, because the ideal is just that. It's the standard that this seems almost unachievable. And, and what we're forced to do instead is to, is to live in the reality, even if we've set our standard, the ideal, And so what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks is some ways that you and I and our families can begin to close the gap between that ideal and what is our reality. We said in week one that the only way that we can close that gap is if we allow the grace of God to cover that. That because we're going to make mistakes and because we're not going to reach the ideal that we should, we, we have to allow the grace of God to cover that for us. And in week two we talked about how our families are structured and the way that God designed families to work. In week three, we talked about conflict and how the only thing that's common in every family is that there's going to be conflict. When you love that much, it's easy to get hurt even more. And then last week, we talked about this this concept of forgiveness and how for a lot of us, the forgiveness isn't what we thought it was that it's something much different. And the biblical definition of, of forgiveness makes it not only a little bit easier for us to forgive, but that when we forgive in the way that God commanded us to, that we can have eternal impacts on the lives of those that we forgive. And so what I wanted to do today was I wanted to take a look at a story in, in Scripture, actually two stories that come in together as one story. We, we, if you grew up in Sunday school and in church or whatever and you heard, you know, Bible stories as a kid or whatever, there's a good chance that you always heard these stories told separately. But what I want to do today is I want to work and see if we can connect the dots between what happened later with what preceded it. And we're going to see how the, the legacy that families leave plays a, a tremendous impact into the generations that come after. And that's true for my life. Uh, I had the, the, the great privilege um, for, for a season of my life uh, in, into my teenage years to know my, my great-grandfather. Uh, my great-grandfather, actually, um, when, when I knew him, I, I never knew him when he could see, but the whole time that, that I remember that I had a relationship with my great-grandfather, he was blind. Um, but what I do know about my great-grandfather, uh, based on some of the stories that I've heard through my family, is that he was really, really good at, at fixing lawnmowers all right, when, it, when he could see. And then when he, when he lost his sight and became blind, he still worked on lawnmowers even without being able to see. Like, he just had this mentality of, hey, I know what I'm good at doing, and so I'm just going to go do it. Like, okay, I can't see, whatever, I'll go fix lawnmowers anyway. And then that kind of mentality, that pervasive, like, go get it done, nothing going to stop me, nothing going to hold me down. There's like some lyrics to a song I think I'm just quoting right there, like, I don't want to sing it because it'd be weird. But like, so like just that whole go get it kind of attitude. I, I see that in my grandfather, my great grandfather. And then my, my grandmother, his daughter, who I had the opportunity to live with uh, up until I was about 14, 15 years old. Man, I saw it in her. And I, I remember growing up every time that my grandmother and I would try to do projects together that we would butt heads Right. Because like I wanted to do it my way and she wanted to do it her way. And once she knew her way, there was nobody talking her out of it. And then, you know what, because she's my grandmother and my mama got a little bit, too, and it kind of got passed down to me. And I kind of got that. Hey, if I'm if I think I'm going to get it done, I'm going to get it done. Right. Like, that's kind of that's pervasive in my family. I saw it in my great grandfather. I saw it in my grandmother, and we butted heads because it was in my mama, and now it's in me. And my wife has to suffer through that, so, honey, I'm sorry, blame my mama. Like, so, like, it's just, there's this whole kind of don't get in my way when there's something that I want to get done. And it runs in my family. Now, we're, we're pretty productive people. We, we get some stuff done. We might mess it up along the way, and we have to go back and fix a lot of stuff because once we get it, in, it's just the, it's who we are. But I, but I see it. I get, I get to see it, like, from generation to generation to generation to generation. And I got a five-year-old, and I see it in her, and I cannot, oh, I'm dreading the teenage years. Like, I'm already not looking forward to it. Not, and I, you know, I'm going to have to deal with the whole boys thing and the drama thing and the emotional girl stuff that comes with being a father of daughters, and that's cool. But what I'm least looking forward to is that I see in her that same, I'm going to go get it done. And I know that there's going to be a lot, of, a lot of occasions where daddy is the one standing in the way between where she is and what she wants to get done. Like I'm, I already see that in her. And it's this legacy of how we live our lives that we get to see passed from one generation to the next. But here's what I think that, that we fail to, to see oftentimes is that we are someone's previous generation. You see, if I asked you to tell me about your family, you would probably tell me about you know, maybe your, your wife or your kids or maybe your brothers and sisters, quite possibly maybe even your parents, but it would kind of stop there. It kind of stops with our immediate family because we as Westerners think about family very locally, just very specifically to our immediate family. But in other parts of the country, even now, if you ask someone to tell you about their family, then they'll tell you about their, their grandparents and their great-grandparents, and then they'll probably tell you about their, their mom and dad and their brothers and sisters and the stuff that's immediate now, and then they'll begin to talk about the future. Because their concept of family is much much broader than what we typically see in the, the American or the Western world. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to South Africa on a mission trip, and while I was there, one of the pervasive religions, it was a religious Mentality or religious idea was something called ancestor worship. That they believed that how they honored and treated and thought of and respected their ancestors had a lot to do with how blessed and 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 favored they were in this life. It was actually their ancestors who had passed on before that, that administered grace or mercy or favor to them in the current. And so there was this very wide and broad idea of what family was, and it included generations before and it thought about generations after. And what we can typically lose sight of in our American idea is how much what we do now affects the generation after. And we've all heard it. But we just don't think about it very much. And so what I want to do today is I want to tell you a couple stories from the Bible and, and Genesis, the book of Genesis uh, specifically. And, and what, I, what I noticed about these particular stories is that all of us have probably heard these stories in and of themselves. We, we heard one and then we maybe heard the other, especially if you grew up in, in a church environment. And if you haven't, man, we're really glad that you're here. If you, this may be new to, to you in totality. And that's awesome. We're really glad that you're here. But For some of us, what we fail to do is to connect the dots between how one impacted the other. And so what I want to do is I want to tell you the one that we're most familiar with first, the one that most of us are probably most familiar with first. And then I want to rewind and go back, and I want to look at how what happened in generations previous to that one affected the one that we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes. Minutes. So, so here's how it worked. It's going to start with the most, probably the most famous family uh, in the Old Testament. And so it started with um, Abraham. So if we have that graphic, can we put that up, please? All right. So it started with Abraham. Right? He was kind of he was going to be the father of the nation of Israel. And God gave him this promise that his offspring would never pass away. This huge promise in the Book of Genesis. If you want to read it. And Isaac had a couple of sons. One of which was Isaac. All right. And Isaac. Then uh, had two sons. Actually, they were twins. Now, if you grew up in church world, you probably heard this is the story of of Jacob and Esau. But in actuality, it was a story of of Esau and Jacob because Esau was the the twin that came first. And then Jacob uh, had a a whole bunch of sons, 12 to be, in fact. Um, One who was probably the most famous is the story of Joseph. Now, if you've grown up in church world, you've probably heard about Joseph and his coat of many colors and all this other kind of stuff. Here's who Joseph was. Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob's favorite wife. Now, I told you guys in week one that it's really kind of difficult to look into the Bible and find great examples of family. Because almost every family in Scripture that we read about, especially in the Old Testament, was dysfunctional. Now, there aren't very many good families to say, ooh, I want my family to look like that family. But, but in fact, like, because there's just not. Like, and, and this, this is known. No different, all right? The story of Jacob and Joseph, and Jacob had a couple of wives and a bunch of sons, and he had favorites, he had a favorite wife, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But what we see is that in this story of, of Jacob and Joseph, in the that because, sorry, I'm wow. Okay. I'm going to take a breath and get back in because I got myself confused, all right? So I don't want to confuse you. If I'm confused, we're all going to be lost today. So Jacob has a favorite wife named Rachel. Rachel gives birth to his favorite son, Joseph. Now, if we're talking about favorites, that's just complete... Perfect environment for a dysfunctional family, and it was. See, Joseph, because he was Jacob's favorite, he didn't have to go out and work in the field like the rest of his older ten brothers. And as a matter of fact, not only did he not have to go out into the field and work like the rest of his ten brothers, but his father, Jacob, would regularly send Joseph out to check up on his older brothers to see how they were doing. They were always getting in trouble or whatever. And then Joseph would come back and tell his father all the things that his older brothers were doing wrong. Can you just imagine kind of now the relationship between Joseph and his older brothers? I mean, he's the narc. He's the tattletale. He's the snitch. He's the one that's always running back to daddy and telling him everything that we're doing wrong. And not only was he like the tattletale and the one that was always going back and telling dad what was going wrong, he was also a little bit of a dreamer. And he would have these incredible dreams, and he would tell his brother about uh, his brothers about these dreams that he was having. And a couple of these dreams, he was like, "Hey, I had a dream the other night that that I was a planet, and you were all stars, and you're bowing down to me, and I was like, I was lord over you." And they're like, "Oh, awesome! So you're like lord over us." And then there was this other account where he was a sheave. I don't know what a sheave is, but there's a song an old hymn that told me I was supposed to bring them in, and so like. He was a sheave, and then the rest of his other brothers, they were sheaves too. And then them as sheaves, whatever sheave is, their sheave would bow down to his sheave. And like, he just kept telling these stories about these dreams that he was having where one day his brothers were going to bow down to him. To say the least, Joseph's brothers didn't like him very much. So much, in fact, that one day they're out in the field and they're having this conversation because uh, off in the distance they see Joseph coming. And Joseph's brothers begin to have this conversation among themselves. What are we going to do with this guy, man? All these crazy dreams about us bowing down to him, and all he does is run and tell dad all the stuff that we do wrong. Hey, I got an idea. Let's kill him. Whoa, I mean, it seems kind of like escalated to me, like getting told on, let's just murder him, right? And so they're kind of having this conversation about what do we do with this kid? What do we do with him? He's always telling us, we don't like him, let's just kill him. And like, well, so they can't figure out what to do with him, so they throw him into a pit while they're trying to figure it out. And while he's in the pit, they get this better idea, at least in their minds, because they see this Egyptian slave trader's coming down the road or whatever, and they're like, hey, I got a better idea. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him, and then we'll tell mom and dad that he got killed. That way, they don't go looking for him, and we make a little bit of pocket change in the process. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal. So that's exactly what they do. They sell Joseph to the slave traders headed for Egypt. Now, for you and I, like we, we, we read these Bible stories, we hear these Bible stories, and we have a tendency to to kind of romanticize them a little bit because we can't see it. We can't smell it. We can't really put ourselves in Joseph's shoes. But Joseph knew what it meant to be a slave. He would grown up around slaves. This was a, a destination to nowhere. He's not even guaranteed in his own mind that he'll make it to Egypt. I just get this picture of everything that I can find in research about slavery that he would have been, you know, they kind of they shackle him. They probably tie him up behind a, a donkey or a camel to, to almost drag him off to Egypt. He doesn't know who he's going to be sold to and how he's going to end up or what his life is going to be like. For all intents and purposes, as Joseph looks forward to his future, he doesn't see one. He's as good as dead. His brothers go back and they tell mom and dad, hey, we, we found his coat. It's covered in animal's blood. And they, you know, they'd killed an animal and splattered blood on his coat and gave it to his father, broke his heart or whatever. And uh, all, this, all the while, Joseph is headed for Egypt to be sold as a slave. But the Bible tells us that Joseph made up his mind. He decided that he was going to live his life as if God was with him. So Joseph ends up in Egypt and he gets sold to a man named Potiphar. It's actually a pretty sweet gig because Potiphar is the captain of the guard for Pharaoh's army. So he gets sold to a very wealthy man, gets to live in kind of this temple palace or whatever. He's hanging out with, with Potiphar. And the Bible says that, that everything that Joseph touched in Potiphar's house, that it, that it turned to gold. Like everything he touched was awesome. And Potiphar's like, man, I kind of like this deal. This is pretty cool. I like having you around the house because everything that, you, that I put you in charge of, it flourishes. And, and, and I'm becoming more wealthy because you're in my Home. Well, not only was Potiphar excited to have Joseph in his home, Potiphar's wife was pretty happy about the idea too, because she's looking at this Hebrew boy saying, I kind of like what I'm seeing right now. And so she goes to Joseph and she said, hey, Joseph, you're a pretty good looking Hebrew boy. I want you to lay with me. And he's like, I'm not tired. And she's like, no, I want you to lay with me. And he's like, but it's daytime. And she's like, no, I want you to, lay. and he's like, oh, no, we, we can't do that because what about my master, your husband, right? Like you're married, hello, right? I can't, we can't do that. Not only would it dishonor my master, your husband, but it would dishonor my God. Now, for me, I look at this and I go, wait a minute, Joseph, this God, your God, the one you decided to live as if he's with you, I mean, you just got sold into slavery, Led away, shackled to the back of a camel, drugged, who knows how many miles away from your hometown, destined for nowhere. I mean, are you really concerned about what God thinks? And so because he rejects Potiphar's wife, she makes up a a, a lie and tells everybody. She starts screaming and making a big racket or whatever, saying that, that he tried to rape her and all this other kind of stuff. And so those that come, Uh, into their house. They they have to believe her word because she's the master's wife. And so Joseph is nothing but this little slave boy or whatever. And so they take him and they throw him in the dungeon for trying to rape his master's wife. I mean, it was bad to be a slave. It was bad to be in the dungeon. It's really bad to be a slave in the dungeon. Because as a slave in the dungeon, you're not waiting for a court date. There is no uh, attorney that's gonna be appointed to to oversee your case that's gonna come and speak to you. If you're a slave in the dungeon, you're just waiting forever. There is no end in sight. And And then we run into this really odd verse in scripture. And it's found in Genesis chapter 39, verse 21. This is what it says. It says, but the Lord was With Joseph. That's a good thing, right? It's good for the Lord to be with you in in the prison. And he showed him his faithful love. Again, good thing, right? Good good to have God's faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Now, Now, in my mind, if the Lord is with me, and and the Lord is showing me his faithful love, I don't have a relationship with a prison warden. Like, I mean, what good does that do, God? Like every now and then he'll kick me a little extra piece of bread or something. I mean, like what good, is if the Lord is really with Joseph and if he's really being faithfully loved by God, then why is the person that he has the most favor with the prison warden? I and mean, this seems ridiculous to me, but Joseph continues to have faith. And wh- where does that kind of faith even come from? Here, I've been slow- sold into slavery, drug away to a foreign land, wrongfully accused of trying to rape somebody, thrown in a dungeon, and now the person that I've got the most favor with in all the world is the warden. Woo! Big deal. Thanks, God. I still got no end in sight. There's still no end to my slavery in sight. So the, the story in Genesis continues, and eventually, two of, of the Pharaoh, the, the king of the Egyptian world, the Pharaoh, two of his servants end up in prison with Joseph, the cupbearer and, and a baker. And these guys have. Dreams, All right, so Joseph's like, I'm kind of cool with dreams. Like, tell me your dreams, and I'll help you figure out what they mean. And so he, he goes on to tell the cupbearer that, hey, eventually you're going to be restored to, to become Pharaoh's cupbearer again. Like, guess good news for you. So once you get, so, you know, you're going to spend some time here, but eventually you're going to be restored. And then Joseph says, hey, when you're restored, when you once again become Pharaoh's pharaoh's cupbearer how about do me a solid and let pharaoh know that i'm in it. like let somebody know that i'm here like just remember me when you go and speak to pharaoh and the cupbearer's like dude i got you man like thanks for good looking out man thanks for the dream interpretation as soon as i get back if what you say is true and i get back to pharaoh all right as soon as i get to pharaoh i'm gonna be like hey you need to let my boy joseph go i'll, I'll remember you he didn't remember him as a matter of fact two years go by Joseph's still in prison every day waking up with his best buddy, the warden, with no end to his imprisonment in sight. So about two years later... Now Pharaoh's having dreams, and he brings in all these wise men and all these people to try and figure out what his dream means, and none of them can kind of figure it out or whatever, and all of a sudden, kind of light bulb for the cupbearer goes off. He's like, oh, yeah, man, a couple years ago, I had a dream, and there was this dude. Oh, shoot. Hey, I was supposed to remember this kid. Uh, He's like a young Hebrew boy, but he's still in prison, and he's pretty good with dreams. He interpreted my dream, told me I was going to be your cupbearer again. Hey, Pharaoh, maybe he could hook you up. And so they go, like, and they kind of call and roll in the prison. Like, is there a young Hebrew boy named Joseph here? And he's like, yeah, that's me. Uh, that's me. And he's like, all right, good. So they take him out of prison. They kind of wash him off. They clean him up. They shave his head. They put some guy liner on him. They put some rings in his ears and probably gave him a couple of tattoos and make him look real. They got him walking like an Egyptian. Like, they got him doing all the stuff that he has to do to, to enter into the throne room of pharaoh and so they bring david before pharaoh and he's like hey they tell me that you can interpret dreams and he's like well i can't but my god can now for us with that that's like okay yeah cool because he had god but you see pharaoh was thought of as a god and so for joseph to make this statement that i can't tell you your dream but my god can was essentially saying to the pharaoh that there is one god and you pharaoh are accountable to him Like all the, you know, the the palace guards like grabbed their swords, like, and pull it out. He's like, ah, don't kill him. I got to know what's going on with my dream. And so Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. And Joseph's like, oh, yeah, check it out. Here's what that means. It means that for the next seven years, the land of Egypt is going to bring in so much grain that they're not going to know what to do with it. Like it's going to be so bountiful that you're not even going to know where to put it. And then the seven years following that, there's going to be a great famine in all of the land, and people are going to die and starve because there's no food. And then Joseph doesn't stop there. Like, I would think, like, I just, like, look at me, Pharaoh, like I just told you his name. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to give Pharaoh advice. I mean, you just get this, right? Like, you can still smell prison on him, and he's giving the king of Egypt advice. He says, here's what you got to do. You need to find a really sharp, really strong administrator And this administrator is going to oversee the grain collection for the next seven years. We're going to build silos in all the land, and we're going to store all of this grain. And as it's stored up, then when the seven years of famine here, you're going to be the only person that has any grain anywhere because you saved it up for seven years. And then the people who gave you the grain to store up, they're going to have to buy it back from you. You're going to become incredibly wealthy. And not only are you going to be able to buy it back from the people that gave it to you in the first place, but people in other lands all across this area of the world are going to hear that Egypt has grain, and they're going to come, and they're going to buy it from you, and you're going to become even more wealthy. And like all all of Pharaoh's scribes are coming, that's that's good stuff. They're writing it down or whatever, and Pharaoh says, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm putting you in charge. Everybody kind of gasped. Like this kid that we've known for fifteen minutes that we just just went and got out of the prison cell is now the prime minister of Egypt, the second in command to Pharaoh himself. And so, for the next seven years, Joseph. Leads the nation of Egypt to keep the extra grain. And he builds silos in all the major cities of Egypt. And he stores it up. And for seven years, there's so much that they don't know what to do with it. And then kind of, you know, January 1 of year 8, the grain dries up and there's nothing left. Nothing to be harvested. And the people begin to starve. And then Joseph oversees the administration of getting grain out to everybody in Egypt so that they won't starve. And eventually word gets out to the other areas that are adjacent to Egypt. And people began to come from all over the place to buy grain from this uh, prime minister of Egypt. And one of the groups that came were from the land of Canaan. They're Joseph's brothers. Look with me at Genesis chapter 42 Beginning in verse 5, and it says, So Jacob's sons, now y'all remember Jacob's sons, these are the guys that sold Joseph into slavery, left him for dead, sent him off into a foreign land. Who cares what happened to him to tell mom and daddy's dead, right? That whole story. So Jacob's sons arrive in Egypt along with others to buy food for the famine in Canaan. The famine was in Canaan as well. And since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. And Jacob recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger. Now, remember, they shaved his head, makeup, tattoos, whatever, jewelry. They don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them he begins to remember, it's been 22 years, but that's not something you forget. He remembers the, the smell of the pit that they threw him in as they tried to decide what they were going to do with him. He remembers the, the smiles and the laughter as they agreed to sell him into slavery and leave him for dead. But he can remember the chink of the coins hitting into the slave trader's hands as he was sold for a price. He remembers the dungeon with no end of his imprisonment in sight. He remembers. And here he stands with the very men responsible for all of that. His brothers bowed before him. And he holds in his hand the power of life and death. Without him, they're dead. And he remembers. But he not only remembers his life, but he remembers something else about his father's life. And so in order to see what it is, that was probably at the forefront of Joseph's mind in this moment. We have to, we have to kind of rewind. We have to go back. And remember, what we had, Who put that graphic back up. You got Abraham, and you got Isaac, and you got, you got Jacob and Esau, and then you got Joseph. Well, Joseph's father, Jacob, had a twin brother, Esau. We talked about that earlier. Now, Jacob and Esau, when they were teenagers, Esau being the first An oldest son was entitled to the birthright. Now the birthright entitled him to to twice the wealth of any of the the rest of Isaac's children. And entitled him to be the judge and the ruler over the rest of the family. So when Isaac would pass away, Esau would then become the patriarch of the family, the overseer, the judge, the ruler over all the family, and the most wealthy of any of the rest of Isaac's children. So one day, Esau's out hunting because he was a hunter. And he, he didn't have a good day, didn't, didn't, didn't kill anything, didn't catch anything. And he's, the, the Bible tells that he's literally almost about to starve to death. And so he makes his way back home and he smells something delicious. And Jacob had, had a pot of stew kind of on the boil or whatever. And as Esau walks up, he smells this and he tells Jacob, give me some stew or I'll die. And for you know, y'all know how big brothers and little brothers kind of interact? There is very seldom the opportunity for the big brother to need anything from the little brother, right? It's kind of this whole power struggle for most of their life. If you had younger and older brothers, you know what I'm talking about? And so for the first time, maybe in Joseph's life, Esau needs something from him. And much in the fashion of younger brothers, he's going to leverage this to the best of his ability. He's going to get the most out of it possible, So here's what he thinks to himself. I keep saying, I keep getting Joseph and Jacob switched up. If I've I've messed that up more than the time that I just recognized, I'm sorry. Y'all just follow the story. All right, so Jacob then looking at Esau says, I'll tell you what, we'll start the bidding at your birthright. Esau says, deal, I'm getting ready to die anyway. What do I need with a birthright? Give me some stew, bro. And so I don't think he said bro, but anyway, like he said, so he gives him some, some, he trades his birthright for a bowl of soup. And we don't know how long, the Bible just says soon thereafter, Isaac begins to get very, very ill. And it was customary in this day that each son In the family, as the father was getting ready to pass away, would come before the father to receive the the blessing. Now, the blessing in this day was like a legally binding contract. And so Isaac, who had had at this point almost completely lost his sight, calls Esau in and says, Hey, son, I think I'm getting ready to die. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out to the woods. I want you to kill something. I want you to come back. I want you to cook it up in my favorite way. Bring it to me, and then I'll give you my blessing for I'm about to pass on. Now, Esau leaves to go and do what his father said. The whole time, Isaac's wife hears what's going on, this interaction between Isaac and Esau. And she goes to Jacob because I guess he was the favorite, right? He was kind of mama's favorite, right? He was mama's boy, right? So, so Rebecca goes and, and, and gets Jacob to say, hey, your brother's out going to kill something once he comes back. Your father is going to give him the blessing. So here's what we're going to do: we're going to sneak you in. Daddy can't see anyway. We'll sneak you in, he'll give you the blessing, and then you get the birthright. And so Esau, while away, Esau is away, Rebecca helps Jacob, all right, kind of disguise himself. And Esau was really hairy. Jacob was kind of like Irish and you know, fair-skinned or whatever, and Esau smelled a particular way. Uh, Jacob probably smelled like perfume or something. We don't know, but like, so she, she puts some of Esau's clothes on him, so he'll smell like Esau. She puts some goat fur on his arm, so he'll feel kind of hairy, and then he goes in to Isaac, and he's like, hey, Isaac. Uh, or, hey, dad, I'm Esau. He's like, you don't sound like Esau. You kind of sound like Jacob. He's like, nah, smell me. And like, he's he smelling him and like, feel me. All right, well, you feel like Esau. You smell like Esau. You sound like Jacob, but whatever. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, good chance it's a duck. So I guess you're Esau. Let me get that food you're supposed to give me. Rebecca hands him the meal. He eats the food. He's like, all right, let's, let's get it done. So, and, and he gives Jacob Esau's blessing. And then soon thereafter, so then Jacob kind of gets out of the room or whatever. Now Esau comes in. He's like, hey, dad, I got the food and I'm ready for my blessing. And he's like, sorry, I already gave it to the one that was here before you. And Esau is enraged. I mean, his brother stole his birthright, you know, whatever, and, and now has stolen his blessing. And this is what the Bible tells us in, in Genesis chapter 27, verse 41. It says, from that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme, I will soon be mourning my father's death. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. This is not going well for Jacob. All right, so Jacob gets word that Esau's upset that he's, as soon as your daddy dies, he's going to kill you. And then he's going to get back his birthright, get back his blessing. He's going to get everything by killing you. And so Jacob, through the advice of his mom and now his dad, they're like, yeah, you got to get out of here because Esau's about to whoop you up. So, like, so he's like, you got to get out of here. You need to go and live with your uncle Laban. So he goes. To live with his uncle. Now, in this day, you know, incest wasn't quite the thing that it was today. And so, his uncle Laban has a couple of daughters. He's like that younger one, looking pretty good. I think I'd like to marry her. Hey, Laban, how about I marry her? He's like, Yeah, you can marry her. Just work for me for seven years. He's like, Done deal. So, so Jacob works for Laban for seven years, thinks he's marrying the younger daughter, but Laban pulls the whole bait and switch on him, and he ends up marrying the older daughter Leah instead. And he's like, man, I thought I was marrying Rachel. He's like, man, I can't let you marry my younger one before my, before my oldest one gets married off. That's just not cool. So he's like, all right, fine. He's like, well, I still want to marry Rachel. How do we make that happen? He's like, you work for me for another seven years. Well, that's some shady dealings back then. But anyway, so he's like, all right, fine. I don't know if I can handle seven years. That's a, that's a big investment. So anyway. He's like, all right, so fine. I want to, I want to marry Rachel. So he works for Laban for another seven years, and now he's got two wives, and he starts to have a bunch of children through Leah. But Rachel can't get pregnant, and she gets all upset because she can't have children. So Jacob, and, and so she, because she can't have children, she says, like, "Here's what I'll do. I'll give you my maid servant, and she'll have children in my place, and the children that she have will be on account of me." So I get to keep. So like Leah and Rachel are keeping score of who can provide Jacob with the most sons, right? Is really weird. You, you should read your Bible. It's awesome. So it's fun. And so, and like almost, so now, like, Rachel can't have children, so she sends her maidservant in, and Jacob starts having children with her. And then Leah's like, Well, if you're going to have children through her maidservant, you can have them through mine, too. So she's like, Every day Jacob's come home, and there's like another woman waiting for him. going, Come on, big boy, let's go. Like, so, just, I'm, it's all oh, you, sh- you should read it. Right, it's cool. And so every day he's having, he's having son after son after son after son. And then Leah, uh, Rachel finally gets pregnant, and she has a couple of kids. And And because she was his favorite wife, and one of her sons was Joseph, so he becomes the favorite son. We remember that, right? And so now he's got all these children. And he begins to increase in in wealth. his herds are bigger than everybody else's in the land. And now the cousins that he's going to live with, they start to get pretty upset. His uncle Laban gets pretty upset. Like my flocks are supposed to be bigger than yours. And he's like, sorry, I don't know what happened, but mine are big. He's like, well, there's not enough space for your flock and my flock. And so you got to get the flock out of here. That's a bad joke. And so like he takes, so Jacob then decides he's got to take his flock and move it back because God tells him to move it back to the land of his fathers. Look with me at Genesis chapter 31, verse number three. All of this property, all this wealth, all these sheep and goats and herds and cattle and all of a sudden it says, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father and grandfather and to your relatives there and I will be with you. To which I'm sure... Jacob thought, well, you better be with me because guess who I left back in Canaan? My brother Esau. And the last time that I saw Esau, we weren't on good terms. And I think he was about ready to kill me, if I remember right. And not only does Jacob know this, but I'm sure he certainly had told the stories to, to Leah and to Rachel and to his other two servant wives that he was having children with. And all of his children, including Joseph, had heard the stories about how their father Jacob had essentially stolen the birthright and blessing from his older brother Esau. And so they're like, hey, so we're going home to see Uncle Esau? And it wasn't like going home to see our uncles, right? He's like, yeah, we're going back to the land where Uncle Esau is. Isn't that kind of dangerous? Yeah, it's kind of dangerous, but you know, the Lord said. And so what the Lord said, Jacob did. And so they began to head back toward the land of Canaan. And Esau gets word that they're coming, that they're on their way. And I just—I can only imagine in Esau's mind, it's like, finally, my ship has come in. My day of vengeance is here. Everything that was stolen from me, everything that I lost, everything that, that I was deceived and lost is on account of is about to be returned from me. And this is the account in Genesis chapter 33, verse 1. It says, Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming. With his 400 men. 400 men. Like this isn't Esau and his wives and all the kids and the cousins like, hey, let's go welcome, you know, uh, my brother and your uncle Jacob into town. Let's go, let's go welcome all the... No, 400 men. Esau's coming with a small army. It says, so he, Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servant wives. And he put the servant wives and their children at the front, Leah and her children next, and then Rachel and, look at this, Joseph. There's only, he had 12 sons. Only one of them gets mentioned by name in this text. And it's Joseph. And so kind of, just kind of get this picture in your mind. Here's this huge caravan of, of herds and, and flocks of sheep and herds of goats and cattle or whatever. And this whole huge caravan, caravan of, of Jacob. And he's got his two servant wives out front. He's got Leah and her children behind them. And now he, he's, got, he's trying to protect, I guess, you know, his favorite wife and his favorite son at the back. So he's got Rachel and Joseph at the back. Let's keep reading. Then Jacob went on ahead and as he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. Then Esau looked at the women and children and asked, who are these people with you? These are the children that God has graciously given to me, your servant, Jacob replied. Then the servant wives came forward with their children, and they bowed before him. And then next, Leah with her children, and they bowed before Esau. And finally, here it is again, look. Joseph and Rachel came forward and bowed before him. And on the day that Jacob was the complete... Mercy of Uncle Esau. When Esau could have exacted any revenge that he wanted. He could have done anything he wanted. He had an army against a caravan of wives and children. He could have done anything that he wanted to do to Jacob. He could have gotten his revenge. And this is a story that Joseph would have heard all his life the day that uncle esau could have done whatever he wanted to jacob the day that he could have taken revenge for all the wrong that he had been done but he didn't and joseph because he didn't he spared your life and he spared your mother's life and on that day reconciliation happened that no one expected extreme forgiveness. And now it's 30 years later and Joseph is standing in the exact same position as his uncle Esau. Here my brothers are before me and I hold in my hand the power of life and death. And so Joseph chooses to do the very thing that he saw his uncle Esau do 30 years prior. And he forgives his brothers. He raises them up and he tells them who he is. He spares their life, gives them the food that they need. He sends them home to get his father Jacob, and they bring Jacob to, to Joseph, and it's like, hey, daddy, it's all cool. And they think, you know, as soon as, as, soon as Jacob passes away that you're not, then Joseph's going to kill us, but he doesn't. He forgives him. In the exact same way that his uncle had forgiven his father. And the same thing that, that, Jake, that Joseph got to see Esau do, he did for his brothers here's the moral of the story what your children and your nieces and nephews and grandchildren what they see you do will lay the groundwork for the things that they do when faced with similar situations there's a real good chance that our kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews and everybody that, man, there's a real good chance that they're going to forget everything we say. But they'll never forget what we do. They won't forget what we did when the times got toughest. That they won't forget what it looked like when staying was harder than leaving and we chose to stay. When, when not paying our debts would have been easier than working a little bit harder and, and paying off stuff and being financially responsible. They'll remember the ways that we handled ourselves, the way that we interact with our family members, the way that we dealt with conflict. What if what you do is what your children and grandchildren will take their cue from? Dads, what if you're the model for how your sons are going to love their future wives? Because you are. Dads, what if the way that you interact with your daughters is the way that they'll expect to be interacted with by their future husbands? What if you're what they'll look for when they get married? Because they will. Moms, what if how you respond to the things that you interact with every single day are the ways that your children and your children will respond to the things that they're forced to interact with every day? single day what if the way that you treat your husband is the way that your daughters are going to treat your future sons-in-law what if the ways that you follow christ will be the ways that they work and seek and try to follow christ because chances are you are if you want to write something down as a kind of a main thought to take away from today this is it Actions don't merely speak louder than words. Sometimes they echo into the next generation. And if that's true, what do we do? If this is true, then it answers the question of why everything that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is so important. Because in the ways that you structure your family, wives the way that you respect your husbands and husbands the way that you love your wives and parents the way that you parent your children will be the way that your children interact with their spouses and their children. The way that you respond to conflict will be the way that your children and your grandchildren and generations that you may never see Will respond to conflict. The ways that you forgive. When you choose to forgive. And when you withhold it. Will have an impact on the way that the generations that come after you. Will forgive. You are and I am. Somebody's previous generation. So let me ask you. What is in your life that needs to change? Because if you are the model for the generations that come after, are you what you're going to want them to become? Because the chances are, you are. And I know the stuff that we've talked about there in this series is difficult to find the ownness and your responsibility in every conflict. To forgive in the situations that are least forgivable. Man, that stuff's hard. That's, I know it. It's, I don't get it right. I'm still working. Man, and I've still got so far to go. But it's worth it for me to try. Because I know that I will be and that you will be the model that the generations that come after us will take their cue from. Here's the great news. We don't have to do it alone. Yeah, this stuff is hard. Yeah, the ideals are almost unreachable. We don't have to do it alone. Because God has told us that if we'll be faithful to him, just like Joseph, I'm going to live my life as if God is with me, that he'll be faithful to us. You don't have to do it in your power. You can do it in his And we should because chances are the very things that our kids will become are what they see us modeling for them now. Our actions don't just speak louder than words. Our actions carry into the generations that follow. Let's pray together. Father, today we ask that you would empower us, God, to be the very people that we desire our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews to be. God, help us to, to learn how to love like you love and to forgive how you forgive. And, and God, not just so that, that we can have a better life and the house, but so that, God, we can begin to model for those that come after us the ways that they should love and the ways that they should forgive. God, I thank you for the story of Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers and how, God, it was the impact of what he saw so many decades earlier of how his uncle forgave his father that God led him to be so compassionate in a situation that was so terribly emotional and stressing where he had the opportunity to do something that wouldn't bring you glory, but God, he acted in the way that he had seen his uncle act. God, now would you help us to act and behave and think and love in ways that we want the generations that come after us to act and think and love. God, we want to be the the strongest link in the chain of what comes after us. And God, we know we can't do that on our own. We can't do that apart from you. That God, it is only you at work in us that will give us the ability to do the very things that you've called us to do, to live towards the ideals and to close the gap between that and what is our reality and God we know that it is only your grace that gives us the room necessary to do it so God we thank you for your love for your son for his sacrifice it's in his name we pray amen amen